Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Where we left our press-to-play story, it was the summer of 1985. Paul is on a break from recording an album that should have come out in the summer of 1985. Instead, he's playing Live Aid and watching Northern songs disappear over the horizon in a Michael Jackson-shaped buggy. Um, The sessions resume in October. There's some business going on in October as well, isn't there? There is indeed. We mentioned that there is a lot of litigation in the background, so all of that is going on. Paul, his contract with Columbia is up. And in October, he will re-sign with Capital in the U.S. So he is reconnecting with the Beatles' original label in the U.S. The other interesting thing that happens in October, specifically on October the 21st, is that Carl Perkins invites some select friends to come and join him in a Carl Perkins special filmed in Limehouse in London. And those guests include George Harrison, Ringo Starr, Eric Clapton, and... Paul McCartney is invited, but declines to attend on the basis that too busy. Too busy. He's back doing sessions from October 1985 to try and get this album finished. Um, uh, There's two big songs and a couple of other bits and pieces to be done. Um, One of the songs that gets finished is uh, a song which is another Eric Stewart co-write, although Eric has long since left the building, and it's Angry. And there was an original version recorded in the earlier uh, spring 1985 sessions, um, but Hugh Padgham got him to re-record the track. Uh, as I said, Eric Stewart isn't in the room and he's not really happy with that decision to re-record Angry. No, indeed not. And again, this is just, uh, the, these basic tracks, these basic band tracks are just being rehashed. So Eric says, again, back to that uh, Super Deluxe Edition interview in 2017, God knows what happened. By the time it was finished, there were four producers involved and they'd messed up those songs, like Angry, totally changed them. A great song called Stranglehold, which is a beautiful song we'd written together, buggered it all up with blipping saxes going all the way through the verses. All that remains from the original uh, recording back in March the lead vocals and the harmony vocals, everything else then is sort of rebuilt around the, the those vocals. The other interesting thing here is that uh, Paul gets special guests in yes. to help him record. Yeah, two very notable special guests, uh, Phil Collins and Pete Townsend. 
And Pete Townsend, you know, Paul said, you know, I'd kept in touch with Pete after Rockestra, yeah, and Live Aid. So Live Aid has just happened. Pete's actually only on Angry. There's a chord riff I'd written a long time ago for something else. And every time I played it, I felt like Pete Townsend. There was plenty of those windmill arms when I played it. And I always imagined him doing it. It actually only took two hours to get that track down on tape, which is incredibly quick these days. In the old days, we'd have done an album by then. Well, that's pretty true. Uh, Pete, at this point in his life, it's 1985, he's doing a solo career. He's a book editor for Faber and Faber, and the Who have ceased to function as far as he's concerned forever from about uh, 1982 onwards. So he's in a a lull, although the Who had also uh, played Live Aid. So Pete Townsend is there, but then Phil Collins, who we've already mentioned as being in a Hugh Padgham's phone book, probably right at the very top of his Rolodex. It is the mid-80s after all. Um, Phil gets involved. So, um, you know, Phil talks about that in Rolling Stone. He does. So this is a 2018 interview. He said Hugh Padgham was engineering the record. And I guess Paul wanted to use some different people. I got the call, took my drums down, and we did the song, which wasn't one of his best songs, but Townsend was there playing guitar. That was great, because when Pete Townsend smiles as he's playing, you know you're doing something right. Wix Wickens, who is now in Paul's band as a keyboard player, he was at the session too. It was an interesting day. Linda McCartney was still around. She took a photograph. I got a lovely photo album sent to me from her. It was just after Live Aid. I remember that. Now, at this point, I'm going to quote something more from the best rock and roll autobiography ever written. It haunts me. Not... Not Dead Yet by Phil Collins is a book that, oh, it just just upsets me so much. Go on, read away. Well, okay, this is uh, the first edition of this uh, book. I'm sure it's sold out in in many editions. This is in the context of his But Seriously album, where he has recorded the song Another Day in Paradise, which, you know, again, took some stick for being a millionaire rock star opining about homelessness. But anyway, he says, in making these forays into issue-based writing, I wanted to sound like me. I didn't want to sound like Paul McCartney sounded when we recorded his song, Angry. A little self-conscious and barely committed. Post-Live Aid, I was invited down to Paul's East Sussex farm to play on his new album. I didn't know what he was looking for, only that Hugh Padgham, who was producing this new McCartney record, had suggested me to Paul to give the music a bit of a kick. Pete Townsend also got the call, so he and I arrived down to guest on what would become Macca's 1986 album Press to Play. I'm loath to use the dreaded 80s phrase, conscience rock, but the three of us are switched on, engaged, mature men of the world. We've all been around the block and around the planet's biggest stadiums. Us millionaire musos, we know all about despair, poverty and injustice. We must do. We've all done live aid. In the studio, Macca declares... When I was doing Live Aid, I felt angry, and I wanted to write a song about it. I felt I should be angry about something, so I wrote this song. It's called Angry. At best, says Phil, you might say it's a very 60s attitude. I'm thinking, well, either you're committed about something or you're not. I like McCartney. He was a hero of mine growing up, but he's got a few quirky issues. He's very aware when you're talking to him that he's a Beatle. Well, you know, if anyone's angry. It's Phil when it comes to Paul McCartney. He hasn't forgiven Paul for the slight when Phil asked for an autograph on on a, uh, I think it was a Hard Day's Night album or or something that Phil had. It was a book, I think it was a Hunter Davies biography, I think maybe a first edition. And, And Paul said, oh, we've got a bit of a Beatles fan here, have we? And Phil really found that annoying and I think it's really funny <laughs> I think oh, oh no I can I can understand Phil's uh, little he called he he called him little Phil 
<laughs> little Phil. It, it, and he did yeah. this in front of <laughs> Phil's wife or girlfriend or in front of an assembled crowd. Well, uh, Phil's wives are a crowd. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it's worth pointing out that when Angry is recorded in October of uh, 1985, Pete Townsend is 40 years old and Phil Collins is 34 years old. These grand old men of rock, 34 um, you know, premature balding can um, do a lot for a man. Yeah, it, it, Phil is pretty scathing. He's got a real chip on his shoulder about many things. That book should just be called The Chips Upon My Shoulder. It's it's like that Father Ted thing. And now on to liars. It just is one grievance after another. You recommended that book to me. You said, yes. have you read the Phil Collins book? It's something else. And I took that to be a recommendation. <laughs> no, it's like it's something else. It's really miserable. Um, yes, Phil Collins. Uh, but we don't care what Phil thinks. All we want to know is, what's Hugh's view? Hugh says, one of those go home by lunchtime sort of things. The guitar is very Pete Townsend. It's good. It's not a good song. It's passable, but very much Division 2. Right. Thanks. Hugh, next track is a track I really like, and it's Only Love Remains. Um, It arrives later in the sessions, and out of any of the tracks on the album, it's probably the most identifiably Paul. Uh, You know, in fairness to Press to Play, an awful lot of the tracks, you can't really see them turning up on Tug of War or um, Pipes of Peace. Only Love Remains could have slipped in those. It's kind of in that wanderlusty, ballady vibe. And it's a bit of a, a Paul classic. And it, it does seem strange to me that this wasn't a, a bigger single. I, I do, as I said, I remember it coming out. I remember him publicising it and pushing it. Um, but are, are you a fan of Only Love Remains? I do like this song. I like this song a lot. And again... There are different versions of it, not necessarily different versions that come out of the sessions, but there are they're sort of uh, a couple of different versions that people can go and look at and, and watch on, on YouTube. But it is, as you say, in the mould of a big classic McCartney ballad. I think it is something that has aged quite well in a way that the rest of the album hasn't. And I think when I first heard the album, this song stood out as being different. It sounded different. It was less 80s, and in that sense, I maybe didn't like it quite as much because I was quite taken with the sound of the album. But um, Paul, again, signed on signed in October 86, said, people ask if I feel an album's incomplete without a ballad, and I do think that a little bit. I know there are people who like them who will inevitably gravitate towards that particular track. People who've heard the album say, that's the McCartney I like. So I sort of put it on for them and for myself because I'm pretty romantic by nature. It's not so much the feeling, now we must do the compulsory ballad, it's more that I can write them, and I like them. I like the quiet moment, and this song is that reflective moment, and it comes at the end of side one. So if you're not in that mood, you can always take it off. (laughs) He's promoting the album here. This is a weird... uh, You know, these interviews, late 86, he's really defensive and almost apologetic I think sometimes at the tone that comes across oh well if you don't like it you know you can move on past it and uh, which yeah. I think is sad you know that he's producing a piece of work here and normally everyone comes out and goes this is the best thing I've ever done and Paul is just by this stage he sounds I want to say maybe slightly demoralised by the whole experience 
the person who's involved in this track uh, is Tony Visconti, who does the orchestral score. And he last did an orchestral score for Paul for Band on the Run. And he describes in his book Bowie, Bolan and the Brooklyn Boy about how he went down to do the orchestral recording um, at Hog Hill Studios. Uh, He says, I drove down to his outrageously beautiful recording studio on the Sussex coast. It's in a circular, disused, old mock windmill. After a little more small talk, Paul played Me Only Love Remains, a gorgeous ballad. He said he wanted to record it live with a small orchestra of strings, woodwind instruments and a rhythm section. I want to play piano and sing it live in the same room with the musicians. When the day came to record, Paul had the 30 or so musicians taken down to Sussex by coach. The plan was to try and record a rhythm track in the morning to be safe and overed up the orchestral instruments in the afternoon. Once that was achieved, we had a go at recording the entire ensemble with Paul singing and playing live. The musicians from the orchestra spent the morning and lunchtime in the local pub and were well lubricated by the time we sent them round 2.30pm. We managed the overdub and then set up for the live performance. I stood next to him while he played the piano and sang and while I conducted the orchestra, it was like having my own private McCartney concert. I would look over to Paul for a cue and then he would smile and continue to sing to me. He never made a mistake and each take was a keeper, which is a very Paul McCartney story that he's able to do that over and over again. I can't imagine getting a 30-piece orchestra into Hog Hill Windmill, I have to admit, though. I know Hugh Padgham mentions uh, somewhere that they actually had to borrow music stands from Abbey Road because <laughs> they didn't have enough music stands at, at Hog Hill for the orchestra. But again, it would have made much more sense to go to Abbey Road for Paul, for one yeah. person, to drive to Abbey Road rather than bring... Uh, the musicians down, but you know, you're Paul McCartney. And again, this is the song that is the, I don't want to say old fashioned, but it's the older style of production where he's doing something live in a studio. There's a warmer sound to it. Tony Visconti uh, sort of writes quite affectionately about that session, except there is a weird conversation that takes place at the beginning that I took out of that quote. It is weird, yes. What? So from Bisconti's book, uh, he said, before we got down to business, Paul confronted me. Why did you and Mary Hopkins split up? I was so taken aback by this and embarrassingly answered, uh, we grew apart. Paul could see how choked I was in answering him and didn't pursue it further. That is such <laughs> a weird thing. I think I, I think it is weird. It's, uh, you know, for people who don't know, Tony Visconti was married to... Mary Hopkin, Apple recording artist. Those were the days hitmaker. Um, and even more connectedly, um, he was at the time married to May Pang, who, you know, had been John's partner during the, the last weekend. So, you know, I, I, I think Paul mightn't necessarily have made anything, he mightn't have meant anything mean about it, uh, but... It's a bit of a social faux pas to say, hey, why'd you get divorced? <laughs> you know, some people aren't quite as um, laid back with a response to that question uh, as as they should be. So, yeah, I, I, you know, it's odd. I think Paul, you know, he talks about it and other people talk about it that, you know, you when, when you're interacting with him, he wants things to be normal. You want things to be normal, but it's not normal. And so a question like that can kind of go off the rails. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if Paul was in touch with Mary Hopkin at that point in the mid-80s, but uh, you know, it might have been an innocent question, maybe put in a very bad way. Maybe, maybe. What he should have really asked Tony Visconti was, is it true 
that you stopped John Lennon coming to record with me in New Orleans in 1975, which is also in Visconti's book. But we can people oh, yeah. can go and pick up the book, and we talked about this before. It, but it, um, it is a good book, and we'll ask Tony Visconti when he comes on the podcast. Um, do we really have to go through all the different versions of Only Love Remains? <laughs> Yes, we do. There are people out there who have been sitting since last week with a pencil and paper. So, deep breath. Yeah. It's on the album. It is released as a single on the 1st of December 1986 in a remix version by Jim Boyer. There is also a 12-inch single which contains that remix plus the remix of Tough on the Tightrope and a remix of Talk More Talk by Paul McCartney and John Jacobs. A double seven-inch pack was released, which contained a bonus copy of Mullive Kintyre. Why? <laughs> uh, and then in 2022, the seven-inch singles box, there's another unique mix. So, again, box set gold. That whole thing about releasing um, your fourth single off an album with a copy of the biggest selling single of all time that wasn't Live Aid, sorry, that wasn't Band Aid, that's Max of Desperation, don't you think? Well, there was, there was a game afoot in the latter half of the 80s on the charts, um, which I think about 89 they changed the rules where you could have essentially an indefinite number of formats to get a single into the charts. Um, so people would reissue, you know, they put something out on 10 different vinyl coloured versions. They do double versions. They do reissues. They do two singles with extra mixes. By the time you get to the 1990s, I think you could only have four versions of a single, which is why in the 90s you got CD1, CD2 and the cassette, plus or minus a vinyl, because four was the number. But in the 80s, it was fair game. So whatever it took to get a song into the charts, that's what it took. Paul did go about promoting the single. We might come back and talk about that later on when we talk about what happened after the album came out. Um, but, you know, he, he does give it a good shot. Uh, the, the, the question, you know, once again, we have to ask is, what was Hugh's view? He says, yeah, I remember Tony Visconti coming down to the studio. <laughs> that's it. Amazing. That, that's just uh, fantastic stuff. He's such an uh, Amazing guy. scenes. <laughs> Amazing scenes indeed. Um, we've kind of covered all the album big songs, but there's a bunch of other songs that are kind of knocking around from the various sessions and writing um, meetups that happen across 1985. So um, we should probably barrel People will through be some... getting excited, Jason, because they know what's coming. Well, they know what. Well, first thing that I'm going to mention is a song that is actually quite lovely and quite great. And the demo is out there and it should be on a press to play box set. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, Hugh mightn't have liked it, but it's called Yvonne's The One. And it's Paul and Eric Stewart. And it's lovely. It's a lovely song. And what I always have in my head, what I hear in this song is a kind of, Jeff Lynn Wilbury vibe, but in a good way. You don't think? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it could be. It, 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 it's just a nice song. <laughs> it's a lovely song. And again, Eric Stewart has talked about this. Uh, he did an interview in October 2017 with Amped magazine. It's this same notion where we talked about Footprints and the Paul McCartney writing process. And he said, that was a beautiful song that came about purely from a postcard I received from Nick Mason who is the drummer with Pink Floyd, in case anybody didn't know that. 
It had this gorgeous picture of a girl on the front with a volcano exploding behind her. I showed it to Paul and I said, look at this. This is from Nick Mason. And he looked at it and he said, what's it say? Oh, when I first saw Yvonne, volcanoes erupted. And he sang the bloody first line of the song. We went on from there and we wrote the whole song. That was the magic that he had with the Beatles. John Lennon did too. It was something clicking and inspiring. You just get excited about it. And again, it's that you know, light switch moment where Paul hears something and it just triggers something in his head and he comes up with this type of melody, which is beautiful, except for the version that Eric Stewart recorded on Mirror Mirror, which is terrible. Yes, it is terrible. And Mirror Mirror is the last 10cc album. It came out in 1995 and I think it has even been forgotten by 10cc. There's a there's a 10cc complete albums box set coming out soon and this is the one album not on it. And it's, uh, yeah, the, the version that comes out, it actually opens the album Mirror Mirror in 1995 and it's a, a very horrible reggae light version. It's just terrible. Um, Paul does appear on the 10cc version and he appears on another 10cc song on that album called Code of Silence where he plays strings, electric piano, frogs, crickets and percussion. Eric Stewart has talked about this and he says again it's a lovely song that Paul McCartney got me to record. He just sat there with me one day and started playing a keyboard thing and I said that's beautiful and he goes I'll put a little bass on it and that sounded great. Then he said have you got a good electric piano sound and I said yeah and he said okay patch it into the mixing console let's see what I can do. He put that bit on and by the time he finished I said Paul this is brilliant and he said okay well, you just finish it. Let's see what you can come up with. We did it one afternoon after having a lovely big lunch and a couple of glasses of wine, and he left it and left me with it. It was such an inspirational thing for me to work on. And in the liner notes, not you understand that I have a copy of Mirror Mirror, hmm. Paul is credited on that song with strings, electric piano, frogs, crickets, and percussion. I have no idea what he was doing or how he was playing frogs or crickets. I'm thinking Mon- Monty Python's musical mouse yes. organ type thing. <laughs> anyway. Um, and what, what was Hugh's view? This song would have been chucked out on the grounds of being too sweet and nice. I think this was what we were trying to get away from, or I was. One of the recurring themes of Press to Play is that Paul wanted a hit. A hit, a hit, a hit. And his last top ten hit emerges from these sessions. His last US top ten hit, that is. And it is the mighty song that we all know and love as Spies Like Us. A standalone single that nobody likes that was recorded in September 1985. Kind of in a small gap just before the re- 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 resuming the, the Press to Play sessions. It is credited as being produced by Paul McCartney, Hugh Padgham and Phil Ramone. And it did get to number seven in the US. Um, It sounds like a song that probably took slightly less time to write (laughs) than it does to listen to. I might I might just go for a cup cup of coffee at this point or just let you (laughs) let you, you get on with it. Um, Listen, I I also remember Spies Like Us, the movie and the song coming out because, you know, there wasn't much you could get out of a video club in the mid 80s. Not a great film. And even I, with my childlike head, thought this song is not great. It's quite skeletal. And, you know, maybe it would exist you know, some of these songs would exist quite well. You know, you wouldn't mind if Spies Like Us was hiding on a soundtrack album somewhere and you you, you dug it out. You went, oh, that's an okay song. That's fine. But for it to be promoted as the next big Paul McCartney single, which it is between Broad Street, it's the first thing we hear from him after Broad Street. And uh, 
perhaps it's that sense of attention that it gets that puts it up the charts. But it is not a great song. Even John Landis, the man behind the movie Spies Like Us, doesn't like Spies Like Us. It doesn't even make the soundtrack album. There is a soundtrack album and this song is not on the soundtrack album. Well, the movie was finished and the song the, the, the song kind of arrives unwanted. It's very strange. It's very, very unclear how Paul came to this project. Uh, first of all, we say, I always thought this song was a Paul on his own. Mm. But, but no. Uh, so Paul is on vocals, electric guitar, bass, keyboards, drums, percussion. Eddie Rayner is still hanging around. He's on synthesizer. Linda... Kate Robbins, Ruby James, and Eric Stewart so are on backing vocals. So this is recorded in September 85. So Eric Stewart is, is kind of back in. Uh, you know, he's left the sessions, but then he's sort of back. I have no idea how Phil Ramon gets involved. But anyway, we were saying it's very unclear how Paul came to the project. So Paul says, John Landis rang me and said he wanted an up tempo rock and rolly thing i thought i might have done a bondy type song the 75 piece orchestra more melodic with maybe an eastern touch the known ingredients for a spy type of song i think one of the fun things about what i'm doing now is varying those things a bit so this is with the press release for the single which comes out in a gazillion formats john landis rang me this is not how john landis remembers it no, John Landis says, uh, the movie was finished and I got a call from Mark Canton, the studio executive at Warner Brothers, saying, John, guess what? Paul McCartney's going to write the title song for Spies Like Us. I said, what are you talking about? It's finished. We have an answer print. It's done. He said, no, 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 John, you don't understand. Paul McCartney is going to write the title song for Spies Like Us. And John Landis continues, and this is in an interview in Empire in May 2016, uh, what had happened was Paul had contacted Warner Brothers offering a song for free. I think he's a genius. I saw the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl when I was 15, but it was so out of the blue. An hour later, a phone rings and my secretary answers it. She comes into my office, shaking with excitement. John, Paul McCartney is on the phone. I picked up the phone, feeling giddy, but determined to talk him out of it. But he was so friendly and said, let me just do one and uh, you decide if you like it. How's that, mate? Is that fine? And I just folded. My voice went high-pitched, like the bit in Fantasia, where Mickey goes, Thanks, Mr. Sawaski. When it came in, I thought the song was silly, but had a rocking chorus, so I ended up using it over the end credits, arranged so the chorus is first, and the regular song only starts up as people are leaving the theatre. It's one of the most remarkable things in my career. I've worked with David Bowie, Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, and Erica Badu, B.B. King, and Eric Clapton. It's kind of extraordinary, the musicians I've worked with. I'm very lucky. And there was a video done for it, which John Landis made, where they're in Abbey Road, and Paul is with Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase, and they're crossing the Abbey Road crossing. Um, but it's it's very thin gruel, this song. It's incredibly thin gruel. And even the video is just awful. You know, everything about it. You know, Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd are miming, uh, you know, playing. And, and this leads to the uh, the video being sort of banned, effectively, from Top of the Pops because of the Musicians' Union uh, ban on, on miming or non-musicians playing. So w- there's a second version which just intercuts random bits from the film into the video it's terrible it's an awful song i i mean just awful (laughs) but it does give paul his last u.s top 10 hit in the uk it gets to where where does it get to in the the uk in the uk gets to number 13 
because, as you say, there are multiple, multiple formats. So you've got a seven inch single, a seven inch shaped picture disc, a regular 12 inch single, a 12 inch picture disc. And that features extended mixes. You've got the Spies Like Us party mix. And this is such a weird title the Spies Like Us brackets alternative mix dash known to his friends as Tom brackets. Is that some film reference? Not that I can recall. I haven't seen this film since the last century. Then you get also get a third Spies Like Us DJ version and My Carnival Party Mix, which is a Wings track from 1975. This should take all of your boxes. It's Paul McCartney, <laughs> it's Dan Aykroyd, it's Chevy Chase, it's SNL meets the Beatles. Yeah, but it's just not there. The Washington Post said Spies Like Us is a comedy with exactly one laugh, and those amongst you given to Easter egg hunts may feel free to try and find it. And what's Hughes' view? Just one of those songs we were working on. I think the lyrics got changed to fit the film. I think that's what happened. That might actually explain why Eric Stewart is there if it was sort of bits of earlier stuff that was repurposed. Carried or, over, but maybe. Could I just say, I absolutely agree. Just one of those songs. I agree with Hugh. Hugh and I are <laughs> as one. Um, one or two more tracks. Hang Glide, which is an instrumental, which is a bit fireman-y. Hugh says he doesn't remember that at all. And there's another odd song called Simple As That, which appears on a charity album called It's A Live-In World by the Anti-Heroin Project. And, uh, you know, Paul in the lyrics book says, you know, in the mid-1980s, the BBC asked me to do something for an anti-heroin charity. They wanted a song to give young people the sense that maybe heroin isn't such a good idea. This is what I came up with. It's as simple as that. It is different to the simple as that demo that appears on the Pipes Pipes of Peace box. This is a kind of a reggae-ish, bad reggae (laughs) kind of song, which has Linda, Mary, Stella and James on, on backing vocals. It is. It's a completely two different songs, same title. And I love the idea that he's he's talks about this in the lyrics. He's thinking, you know, I, I want to sing a song about heroin. I've been asked to sing a song about heroin. Get the kids. Get the Linda. Get the kids. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to sing a song. But the weirdest thing, the weirdest thing, and I should say, I have not heard this next track I'm going to mention. I cannot find it either. No, I have. I went on to Discogs. I have paid £16 to buy a vinyl copy of the Anti-Heroin Project album because I need to hear a song by Ringo Starr called You Know It Makes Sense. But when I get this, I'm going to make an MP3, do a little video and stick it up for everybody to see. Because You have to put that. Can we, can, we, can we put that on the Nothing Is Real YouTube? Because that is uh, that will drive millions of people. <laughs> yeah, I think so. This um, is going to drive us to the big time, Jason. He talks, yeah, there's a lyric in the 60s and 70s, we had psychedelic drugs, flower power and caftans and people wanting to be beautiful. You know, as I said, when I was growing up in the 80s, the 60s seemed like so long ago and people were idealising the period. I mean, if if people in the year 2023 decided that they wanted to get excited about the year 2005, I would be kind of shrugging my shoulders saying, why, why do you care? There was a lead-off single from the album called It's a Live-In World. And um, I found the video of that on YouTube. Have you seen this? It's one of those classic, let's get as many celebrities standing around on a plinth singing a chorus type songs. Oh no. Is it a great song? Is it a lost classic? Oh God, no, it's, it's, it's not. But what I did like doing was trying to figure out who was in it. So um, it's got Holly Johnson and Fish 
and Cliff, who sings the fantastic line, all the world looks like a devil in a 3D frame. I don't know. Um, Bonnie Tyler, of what I believe to be Gary Barnacle, blesses Cotton Socks. Just when you think that, you know, maybe the, the fame is going off a cliff, up pops Robin Gibb, that dude from The Alarm, Elkie Brooks, Jim Diamond, Peter Cox, I think, Lofty from EastEnders, and Suggs from Madness. It is hilariously awful, and I'm quite a fan of those mid-80s celebrity charity singles, and this was one that had passed me by um, because this was de rigueur. And I think people, you know, I think people need to do a proper, you know, charity, celebrities all in one room, single again. And I don't mean that kind of version of Imagine that they did during COVID. I mean, everybody oh God, yes. together, uh, everybody together singing a, a kind of some kind of football chant, sing along about, you know, I don't know what, what we're singing about these days, but I think that'd be fun. We aren't the world. <laughs> we aren't the world. And now I've already mentioned bad reggae light. Um, Seaside Woman, Stephen? Seaside Woman, yes, yeah, Seaside Woman. <laughs> Unexpectedly to a, a uh, unsuspecting public, this single is released. This is uh, Seaside Woman by Susie and the Red Stripes, and it gets a summer of 86 release in a remixed version just prior to press to play uh, being released. And a friend of the show, Mark Lewison, writes about this in the Beatles Monthly in August 1986 and said, Linda McCartney's song Seaside Woman was recorded by Wings well over a decade ago under the name Susie and the Red Stripes and released several times since. It has been issued yet again, this time in a brand new mix and on another label. The 12-inch version also features an extended version of the remix. So this song has been released and re-released and re-released and we have a Paul McCartney album coming out, and so he decides what we'll do is remix it and put it out one more time, <laughs> together with the video that can't be played anymore. Yeah, it's little. It's got it's got some sensitivities in it. I mean, the best side of C- the best version of Seaside Woman is on the uh, two vinyl version of um, uh, Red Rose Speedway, where it sounds like a prototype Tom Tom Club, which I quite like a lot. This this song is, of course, written at the behest of the lawyers, because this goes all the way back to that lawsuit by ATV, Northern Songs, MacLean Music, sue Paul for writing Another Day with Linda McCartney on the basis that she doesn't know how to write a song and this is just a scam to divert uh, royalties away from Northern Songs with, with whom Linda is not signed. So she writes this to prove that she can write a song. And um, I think the jury's still out enough on song. that. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Um, the, the the first half of 1986 uh, during the springtime is spent mixing the album and getting it into shape uh, before it breaks into the shop. So speaking of breaks, let's take one right now. End of part one. Intermission. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. Um, so press to play is assembled, mixed, put together. Uh, the first single, Press, comes out in July 1986. There's a, about a six-week wait before um, Press to play the album comes out on the 25th of August 1986. The cover art is a very beautiful and striking photograph, which I don't particularly think has anything to do with what's going on inside the record. No. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. So for people that don't know, this is a sort of very old-fashioned, stylized, sort of 1940s, 50s movie star shot. So it's actually taken, uh, the photographer is George Harrell, and he was renowned for taking photographs of stars in the 30s and the 40s. And he used the, he used a box camera uh, for this shot that was the same camera that he used in, in those days in the 30s and 40s. He has a track record of album covers, so he shoots the cover for Tom Waits' Foreign Affairs, Fleetwood Mac's Mirage, Queen's The Works, and most recently, in 1985, Midge Yours, The Gift. So it's the Midge Your album that is the connection. And this is not an album I was familiar with, but uh, Jeff Bailey, friend of the show, drew my attention to this album cover. And it's identical in in sort of the, the tones and the feel and the vibe. So the mid-year connection, he gave an interview to Super Deluxe Edition. You've got to wonder why Super Deluxe Edition aren't... Well, they've never asked us for an interview, have they? Paul Sinclair? <laughs> no. Anyway, mid-year said, I was a fan of Harrell's work for a long time. McCartney's office got in touch with me to ask who had taken the photograph. This is on the cover of The Gift. He passes on the information and Paul says, see that thing you did with mid-year? Come and do the same. It's a beautiful photograph, but I absolutely agree with you. It doesn't give you any insight into what's happening in the grooves, and it doesn't yeah. seem to really have much connection. Yeah, George Earl, the photographer, was born in 1904. So by the time he's doing the photograph for Press to Play, he's in his 80s. Full disclosure, I didn't buy the gift when it came out, but I did buy the If I Was single, which was number one at the end of 1985 by Mid So, um, yeah, I, I didn't know any better. Um, if we're asking for Hugh's purview, he says, I was very surprised when I saw the cover because whatever you think of the quality of that photograph, it didn't for me capture or represent the music on the album. I remember thinking, oh my God, I think it all sums up what you might call swimming without any direction, a kind of lack of cohesion. That's uh, Hugh again, not mincing his words. There's something about the cover that's a bit like the Double Fantasy album cover, really, because it's Paul and Linda. And, you know, this isn't a Wings album. Linda isn't particularly prominent on Press to Play. Um, no. So it doesn't really add up. It is very similar to Double Fantasy. And that's got to have been in Paul's head. The Harrell photograph is a much... A much more attractive photograph. Uh, you know, it's a beautiful photograph, but it is very much in that black and white style of double fantasy, which I think whenever we were doing the Stuart Sutcliffe episodes, we turned up a photograph of Stuart and Astrid, which is almost a direct yeah. um, a, a, a 
I was going to say reconstruction, but obviously it predates the double fantasy uh, photograph. But um, I wonder, is that a, was that a conscious decision or is it just the way it turned out? You know, take a nice photograph of the two of us. But yeah, there is a complete disconnect. I think it's a gorgeous album cover, but there is a disconnect. And as you say, Linda, her backing vocals are such a prominent uh, feature of Wings and, and things like that, but, but not, not on this album. Um, we don't mean to flog a dead horse, but you know Hugh Pandrum really hasn't minced his words um, in the after in, in in the years since this album originally came out. He, he perhaps was trying to distance himself. I mean, he did produce one of the biggest selling albums of the exact same year, uh, Invisible Touch by Genesis. Um, you know, he characterizes Paul as sort of lazy, a dopehead, and perhaps the worst insult of all, boring. You know, he says in Howard Sunes's fab book, um, it was like he'd been up all night watching television because he was like a walking version of the Radio Times. I think he would literally have gone home at six or seven, probably stayed up till one o'clock watching TV with a spliff and a drink, and he probably didn't really think about the album. He was just watching telly. And, uh, you know, he goes on to say, all the people who work for him, if he said jump, they'd go, from what floor? If he doesn't get his own way, he throws all his toys out of the pram. And there's a there's a really odd thing about Trivial Pursuit as well. There is. This is, this is such a strange thing. Uh, it was Paul's birthday and Hugh Padgham gave him a game of Trivial Pursuit, which, again, I think if I was in Paul's orbit and it was his birthday, I might spend a bit more money than a game of Trivial Pursuit. Anyway. But it was 1986. Trivial Pursuit was the hot gift in 1986. I buy to your uh, childlike (laughs) memories of 1986. (laughs) Unfortunately for Hugh, one of the questions in the Trivial Pursuit game was about Paul's mother. And again, in Fab, Hugh says, he really had a go at me as if it was my fault it was there or my fault that I gave him this box that had this, as far as he was concerned, insensitive question. It was like, fucking hell, you know, it's not my fault. (laughs) So again, I would ask the question, why didn't he sack him? Or why didn't Padgham walk? Yeah. Again, is it just contractual? It's partially contractual and maybe Padgham just, you know, maybe he thought before it came out, the record was going to be a hit, you know, going to be a moneymaker. Before the record does come out, uh, Paul appears at the Princess Trust gig on the 20th of June, 1986. And, you know, this is a pretty significant appearance um, because, as we said in the last episode, uh, Live Aid is, you know, his first kind of tentative steps onto the boards. He's not performing live, and but it's a very significant appearance. The band, and there's a great picture of everybody who was on stage that day, um, including Tina Turner backstage. Um, but he, you know, Paul recalled, you know, there was a monster band with people like Eric Clapton, Mark Knopfler, Elton John, Phil Collins. I came out and did. I saw her standing there in Long Tall Sally, which I hadn't sung in 20 years. I didn't know if I could still sing that high, but when I tried to put in a lower key during rehearsal, it started to sound like Pat Boone, so I just went for it the way I'd originally done it. Um, And yeah, he is rocking out. He is rocking out, and he looks as if he's just got off the tube train from South Kensington to Piccadilly, or actually it would be probably the other way around. Um, (laughs) But, you know, he's he's got the big baggy pants, a slightly grey mullet. It's a very 80s. This is a sort of 80s phenomenon, these, these Princess Trust gigs. You know, the, it, it, it sets a template where you sort of get a big 60s star uh, to come out and sing. You know, you get Jagger and Bowie popping up or you get Tina Turner singing with Paul McCartney. 
two things. One, it probably restores a bit of confidence after the Live Aid debacle. And two, does this give us an insight as to why in even in 2022, Paul will not change the key of a song because he doesn't want to sound like Pat Boone? Maybe. Uh, maybe he just, yeah, he just seems to uh, to want to go for it. Um, the album comes out, uh, the press single, as I said, is July the 14th. The album drops itself on August the 25th. And it comes out the same day as Graceland, which I think is an interesting comparison because in 1985, um, nobody was really paying attention to what Paul Simon was doing next. And perhaps people weren't really particularly wound up about Paul, what Paul McCartney was going to do next. Paul Simon had put out Hearts and Bones, a very 80s-sounding album in 1983, which I do like and has some fantastic songwriting on it, but which had tanked. And if you were to look at the pop world at the start of 1986 and think, well, who's going to release a hit album in August 1986? Is it going to be Paul Simon or Paul McCartney? You wouldn't really have thought that... Um, Paul Simon was going to really land such a colossal hit as he did with Graceland. No, definitely not. I mean, Hearts and Bones was widely regarded as an absolute failure. But again, there had been such a build-up to that album because this was the reunion album of Simon and Garfunkel. That's true. Um, They'd played Central Park. They were on a tour. They were back together. And then they're recording a new album. And then midway through, Paul decides this album is too personal uh, to be a Simon and Garfunkel, and he supposedly wipes all of Garfunkel's contributions to the album. Now, there are bootlegs kicking around where those vocals are still remaining, so maybe one day. But yes, Paul Simon's career had absolutely tanked, and he goes away and comes back with something phenomenal. Now, again, controversially, I'm going to say I love Graceland, but I do not think Graceland is as good as the album that follows it, which is Rhythm of the Saints. And there is an element on Graceland, if you listen to it now, that it has a slightly 80s production sound as well, because there are sort of drum machines. Never let an old folky loose with the drum machine, Jason. (laughs) I love the album, but yes, it's a huge worldwide hit. And Paul Simon is back, baby. Is, is, is this an episode of I Can Call You Betty, the Paul Simon podcast? Yeah. I, I think it is. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> uh, both these albums come out, just for comparison. Other albums out in August 1986, Slippery When Wet by Bon Jovi, Dancing on the Ceiling by Lionel Richie, and of course, Vinnie Vincent's Invasions, Vinnie Vincent Invasion, which is a very pertinent record at the time. I also like to point out, in a little bit of foreshadowing, that on September the 15th, Elvis Costello and the Attractions put out Blood and Chocolate, which to me is the most un-1986 sounding album of 1986 and is an absolutely beautiful record that I love. You know, when Press to Play comes out, what I find interesting is he is not immediately on the campaign trail. He is not out on tour. There's no tour announced. And in terms of promo, a bit like when Back to the Egg came out, he's back at home still working up some new songs. Um, you know, at the end of August, he decides at 24 hours notice uh, on when the album's coming out to do a session with Phil Ramone, which Phil Ramone puts together at the power station in New York with Billy Joel's band, which seems kind of crazy. It is that sense he's moved on mm. you know and i think this is the point where he he knows that the lead single has not landed well he's starting to have these doubts and i think 
even the fact of going back and working with somebody like Phil Ramone. Phil Ramone is an established name. He has a particular sound as well. He's a great producer, but it's a step back. It's a step back towards the George Martin style, I suppose. I mean, I'm not making comparisons between different producers, but it's a retreat into a warmer, more traditional sound, I think, with with Phil Ramone. Yeah, and and they do two songs on August the 21st, um, Beautiful Night, which eventually gets reworked um, 11 years later for um, Flaming Pie, and Loveliest Thing. And, you know, as I said, Paul's been doing other songs that he's been demoing at home the same month. However, the reviews that start to come out for Press to Play... There, there is a good deal of positive reviews, you know. Um, Rolling Stone um, talk about how, you know, it's one of the sturdiest LPs of McCartney's post-Beatles uh, career. And the Chicago Tribune says it's Paul McCartney's most rocking album in ages. So, you know, there's good word of mouth out there. There is good word of mouth. And I think it, it's almost that things have flipped around, that in the last few years, McCartney has had a lot of uh, commercial success, you know, the public are buying the singles, the critics don't like it. Here, it turns around. The, the, the critics are generally positive. So as you say, Rolling Stone said, whereas, give my regards to Broad Street, represented a retreat into Beatles revisionism, press to play plants Paul McCartney firmly in the present. McCartney has always worked best with collaborators. The mates on press to play are Hugh Padgham, Eric Stewart. So, Rolling Stone is identifying uh, this this contemporary sound. And New York Times say, Mr. McCartney seems much more the rock and roller again. This is his most creative and committed sounding album in years. There have been live performances. It's referring back to the the Prince's trust. So, yeah, I think think it's, there are positive critical reactions here. It's just the public aren't interested. There is a new voice on the rock criticism horizon, which is Q Magazine, whose first edition comes out um, in uh, September, October 1986. And this is the team behind Smash Hits, Sir Wacky Thumbsaloft Macca. Um, but they are giving Paul a much more serious berth. And Mark Allen, friend of the show, um, does say that, uh, you know, they're, in his review for Press to Play, there have surely been only three McCartney LPs in the last 16 years for which we should be eternally grateful. McCartney with its light, tuneful ramblings on the joy of rural life, the faintly psychedelic ram with its churning rhythms and flaky images, and the deft, articulate band on the run. Let me amend that. Here is the fourth. Pressed to play sounds like all of the most imaginative and workable elements of the other three shuffled together. I wonder, does Mark stand by that? We should ask Mark to come on and read that review out <laughs> and then answer questions. In one sense, I can see exactly what Mark Allen is getting at here. Yep. You know, when he says it's the most imaginative and workable elements of the other three shuffled together, you've got the sort of experimentation of RAM, you've got the, the sort of the medley, you've got the faint whiff of dynamite weed. You've got good tunes. You've got collaborators. I can see exactly what he means. I think he is dreadfully over-egging the situation here. Yeah. You know, it clearly does not stand alongside Band on the Run or Ram. McCartney, yeah, I, 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 I'd kind of mm. say, right, okay, yeah, I, I'm, I'm prepared to take press to play. 
or with the first McCartney album. You know, the McCart- first McCartney album is is sort of almost a genre onto itself. Um, yeah. And again, it's this idea of seeing things in hindsight and not, not in their original context. But I think press to play, there's experimentation, there's new, new techniques, new ways of working, new collaborations. I think it ticks all those all those boxes. What What people don't like about it now is the 80s drum sound. What people didn't like about it in the 80s, I honestly don't know. Um, the reviews aren't totally excited um, and, and they cover a wide spectrum. Um, a latter-day review from All Music says, McCartney is dabbling in each of his strengths just to see what works. It doesn't wind up as one of his stronger albums, but it is more interesting than some of his more consistent ones, which again is a decent retrospective view. Um, Beatle mm. fan back in 1986 says, uh, it's definitely a different sort of album from what McCartney fans have gotten used to but the result is a bit too inconsistent to be called a really great McCartney album. And then you get down to the Los Angeles Times that says, the album finds McCartney as lost as usual and Eric Stewart of little help. It's basically another in a long line of over 12 years of post-band-on-the-run letdowns by a once almost unimaginably creative artist. And it's reviews like that that people hold on to and keep in mind, I think. I think so. I think people... In the 19, when this album comes out, people want pop McCartney. You know, they want the singles have been selling. You know, the pop singles are what Paul is known for. That's what people want. There's no pop singles here. I think press. To, I think I think press is a great single. But back to that Beatle fan review in September '86, they say this is a welcome addition to the catalogue because it boasts an energy and creativity indicative of an artist once more exploring the boundaries of contemporary music rather than a craftsman simply turning out variations on previous great works but i'm afraid jason what the public want is the craftsman turning out variations on previous great works i think that's the problem oh yeah but you know the the album comes out at the end of august the he's his Promotion of it is somewhat inconsistent for the rest of 1986. Um, there's a Paul McCartney TV special um, where Richard Skinner interviews him and he's sitting in Abbey Road Studio too, but there's, it's really focusing on his career to date. There's only one yeah. decent um, you know, reference to Press to Play where he mimes Press on a guitar on his own, um, but singing live in, in Abbey Road Studio too. He's tinkering in his studio on the never-ending Cold Cuts album. And we talked about Q Magazine. It's probably also worth mentioning in the first episode of Q Magazine, the cover star is Paul McCartney. And this is kind of a resetting of Paul McCartney where he talks about the Beatles and he's becomes this grand elder statesman and he gets a lot of respect. Chris Salowitz is the uh, person who does that cover story, the great journalist, and he says, and this is the opening paragraph, Paul McCartney is 44. He was 20 when his first composition appeared on record. Today he has just returned from remixing a second single from his new LP, Pressed to Play, his 27th solo or group studio album in 24 years. It's a pretty solid (laughs) opening paragraph. And it's it's an interview that covers... Some of the greatest hits, you know, he's asked about Alan Klein, about falling apart with John, you know, the the new album, what it all means. It's a it's a it's a wide ranging interview and it kind of introduces that kind of wide ranging Rolling Stone type interview into the British press, I think. Yes. Q, I think, was very much in its early incarnation. That's what I bought that magazine for. You had these very lengthy retrospective, you know, I can still without even thinking about it, the only yellow-spined 
copy of Q magazine had a career retrospective of Roxy Music and Brian Ferry. You know, that's what you <laughs> bought those early editions of that magazine contained that kind of reporting that we, we really rarely got uh, in the UK. There's a shop in central Dublin that sells old 80s and 90s copies of Q magazine. You pick up one of those old Qs. There's so much reading in it. It's insane. Yeah. And I still have a bunch of old Q magazines somewhere. If you have a copy of the 1991 Q that it, with Eric Clapton on the cover, I have a letter in there so you can see my name in print. That's exciting. Um, Paul does erratic promotion. There's a stranglehold video that's shot in November 1986, just after the single is released in the US. And he's on a stage in a club in Tucson, Arizona. Arizona, and he's kind of jamming on stage playing Alan Toussaint's Fortune Teller, Wings as Love is Strange, and that old classic Tequila. And it's a one of these kind of expensive videos, but it doesn't really make the single go anywhere in the charts. As we said, it stalls at 81 in the US, but it's one of these story videos where Linda is getting a boy in to play with Paul on stage in a club, and it's all, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a forgotten Paul video, really. It's a forgotten Paul video. It's the same as Say, Say, Say. It's the same, I think, same director. Yep. So it's a, it, it, that's what we were doing in those 80s. You were having these long form videos that were like little mini dramas. And uh, yeah, but nothing, nothing helps. Mm. Um, Lenny Pickett is in the video playing saxophone. He's the Saturday Night Live band leader to this day, just as a little Saturday Night Live link. Um, he spends three days at Pinewood doing the Only Love Remains video shoot on November the 17th to the 19th, which is odd because it's a one-take video and it does have Gordon Jackson from The Professionals and Pauline Yates from Reggie Perrin in it as well. And Eric Stewart is in the video. Eric Stewart is back in the room. Uh, and yes. the, he, this is interesting because... Paul goes to Munich on November the 20th to get a Lifetime Achievement Award from Franz Beckenbauer. I don't think I can think of anything more 1986 in German than that sentence. Um, but then the following week, on November the 24th, he's um, back doing the Royal Variety performance for the first time in 23 years since the Rattle Your Jewellery days. Again, Eric Stewart back in the fold. There is another mix done of uh, Only Love Remains. Uh, Paul is singing to a backing track, but it's an it's an yet another mix. So more box set gold. He's originally supposed to sing two songs, but it's cut to one. He decides, I think, just to play the one song, and it's a it's a lovely version of it. It's a very hmm. simplistic, and it really highlights the song. But my favorite version of that song is on the tube, not the tube yes. train, <laughs> the tube show for people who tube show are outside of the UK and Ireland and who might be too young to remember, The Tube really was a special television programme. It uh, When the BBC's fourth television network, Channel 4, started in 1982, The Tube was a Friday evening music show that didn't come from London but came from Newcastle in the northeast of England. And it ran from 1982 to 1987 and had live television. Had The first ever show had the last TV performance of The Jam, for instance, but people like The Smiths and R.E.M. and Frankie Goes to Hollywood and all these bands would appear on The tube. It was a hugely cool programme. I remember watching it myself as a kid and, and getting lots of information from it. And Paul appears in studio at Tyne Tees in Newcastle on December the 12th, 1986 to perform Only Love Remains. So this is kind of the last push he gives. He does try to get Only Love Remains to be a hit in the UK by doing the Royal Variety performance, doing the tube, making this very expensive video and popping up places with it. 
Yeah, uh, the tube was great uh, until they got rid of Jules Holland. But anyway, um, yeah, it was it was great, and it's a, it's a fantastic performance, and it's the last uh, song of that particular episode. And then he starts playing a whole lot of shaking going on um, mm. as the credits roll, and Linda is there uh, doing backing vocals. You know, uh, one of three backing vocalists. It's great, and he seems to be having a really good time and enjoying playing in front of a, an audience, a studio audience. Yeah, you kind of get the feeling there's certain moments in 1986 where he's chomping at the bit to get out into into live performance again, which he won't do until after Flowers in the Dirt uh, at the latter end of 1989. The album itself, you know, it peaks at number eight in the UK, falls out of the charts. In the USA, it peaks at number 30, which is shockingly low. Um, and sells fewer than 250,000 copies, um, failing to go gold. This is with a new capital label in tow, and it becomes the lowest-selling album of his career. I will put in a caveat there, which is if you've got an album in 2023 that sells 250,000 copies, you possibly have one of the biggest-selling albums of the year. Um, But, uh, yeah, this is not good. And, you know, what's going to happen over the horizon is the Beatles are going to get locked in in 1987 on CD with Sgt. Pepper 20 years ago today. He's really flips into fighting slash embracing slash understanding his legacy. What happens here is Paul has tried to step into the 80s, uh, embracing the new signs, the contemporary approach, hotshot engineer slash producer, and it just fails spectacularly. And I think... It's not that the album is bad. It's not that the production is bad, particularly, I mean, we look, listen to it now and we think, oh, how very dated. But uh, at the time, it's not that there's a lack of promotion. I genuinely think that why this project fails is this is not what people want from Paul McCartney. This is yeah. not the Paul McCartney that they want. The Paul McCartney that people want reemerges after 1987 and specifically in 1989 he's embracing the Beatles he's embracing that legacy you you have songs that like My Brave Face which is an incredibly sort of Beatly bounce to it this is the, the world is not ready in 1986 87 for a new reset modern Paul McCartney and I think that's a shame because I think if he had had a success with Press to Play, I think his career could have gone in a completely different direction. I'm not saying, you know, he's had a bad career since. Obviously, <laughs> that's not the case. But I think the interesting stuff that he does, like that Beatle fan review was talking about, he's pushing the envelope of modern signs and all the rest of it. He still has that career with the Farman and Liverpool sign collage, but it's a sort of separate parallel yeah. thing. He, he, he has to challenge that experimentation and that slightly surreal avant-garde aspect of what he does into almost side projects. But he has to, in order to keep having the hits which he wants and which he psychologically needs, he's got to be the craftsman turning out variations on his greatest work. And I think it, in a way, that's unfortunate. Well, I I have a, a theory, which is the 20-year theory, which is if you are a successful band or act and you get to the 20-year mark, which is a great achievement, after that, there's nothing new you can do, really, that's going to 
make anybody, you know, want to, you, you can't start again. And there's very little that you're going to do after the 20 year mark that you can add to a concert or a greatest hits that's going to make much of a difference. There are very few exceptions to this. And if, you know, Paul at this point had passed his 20 year mark, the Stones had passed their 20 year mark. I think if you apply it to latter years, you get a band like um, like U2 who kind of go from about 1980 to 2000 and then, mm. you know, people just aren't interested. You know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers kind of, you know, they uh, 20 years R. after e. their career, there's R.E.M., well, yeah, I don't know if REM even managed to. Yeah, they they get they they kind of turned it off for twenty years. I think a great example is Billy Joel, who releases records for twenty years and then just stops. You can still be a big concert draw, a big act, a big deal, and famous. It doesn't like your fame doesn't disappear. But after twenty years, we get it, and Billy Joel kind of understood that innately. So Paul is kind of going into this this era, and yeah, when you when you look at what he does next, and we can do flowers in the dirt some other time but there is a reset that happens at the start of 87 where uh, it's retrospective and prospective where Phil Ramone comes in he does PS Love Me Do and then spends two weeks with Phil Ramone at Hog Hill and one of the songs he does during that time is Back on My Feet his first Elvis Costello co-write and this is the new direction this is you know he the Elvis Costello sessions actually happened the ones that we have in the Flowers in the Dirt Box at the end of 87 but he's written this one-off song called Back on My Feet which Elvis says was mainly written by Paul that he tweaked and worked on and it ends up being the b-side of another song he does with Phil Ramone in March 87 which is Once Upon a Long Ago Um, and that is the song that that is that turns out to be his last UK top 10 hit. So he retreats from Press to Play, gets together a compilation, tries to write a bona fide top 10 hit and hits the ground running, doing insane amounts of promo at the end of 87 to get that song into the charts. Um, but that is probably a story for another day. Um, you and me both like Press to Play. I've come to like it over the years and I don't know whether I like it just because I'm listening to it <laughs> in a kind of, oh, there's there's some gold here and with a, I'm listening to it with a little bit more patience. The people who were involved in Press to Play, what do they think of it now all these years later? All these years, all these years later, well, it's not a surprise that Hugh doesn't like it. Hugh Padgham doesn't like it. He says, if I'm completely honest, the album we made called Press to Play wasn't a very good album. And then... In a perfect example of understatement, he said, I kind of fell out with Eric Stewart during it. Kind of, Hugh. Kind of. (laughs) Kind of. But then he goes on to say, again, this burning bridges. He said, Paul McCartney became quite annoying as far as I'm concerned, if I'm being completely honest. After sort of a year of every day in the studio, he's not on the same pedestal as when you started. I really don't look back on the record that I made with him with much fondness at all, to be quite honest. I don't think it was that great. I don't think he was in an era of writing good songs. I was amazed because Eric Stewart was a hero of mine from 10CC. I thought, it just must be me. I I can't see the wood for the trees or whatever. But I look back on it now and I realise I was completely right, really. (laughs) Yeah, um, uh, Eric Stewart says, you know, I feel the project dragged on far, far too long after I'd left it and the production direction changed many times. I feel it has lost its way long before it hit the streets. It was a very different album from the one I thought I was going to record with Paul. And in retrospect, I can see the flaws quite clearly now. It was ghastly and I felt sorry that I'd got myself involved and then was told to walk away from it when it was going so bloody well before Hugh got involved with the production side. 
I think he would admit himself now it was a grave mistake. But anyway, that's Eric Stewart in 2017. And uh, Owen Ling, friend of the show, says, uh, Eric said to him, much later on, Paul did apologise, saying he got it wrong too. By the time it was finished, we'd had five producers on it. Five. It ended up being Paul's lowest selling album. But there is a great album there, a great album of sessions there. There, This is prime box set material and with the 80s production prime surround sound material as well Paul's take on it Paul's take on it has changed over the years so if we look at the things that sort of things he was saying uh, the interviews he was giving in the run up to promoting the album he's sort of half hearted about it and again I think it 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 strikes me that he's just lost confidence so uh, he's speaking to the the New York Times in August 1986 and he said when we started Working on the record, Hugh came in one day and said he'd had a dream. He dreamed he woke up one morning and he had made this really bad, syrupy album with me, an album he hated and that it had blown his whole career. We took that as a little warning. So this is actually him speaking before the album comes out. He's preparing the waiting world for his new sound. And... um, He said, it's nice to kick over the traces. Sometimes you just need it. Like in my case, I thought, maybe I'm being an ace... Maybe I'm thought of as being an ace balladeer. People know I do that. They don't know I like to do harder stuff like Angry on the new album or associate me with electronics and backwards guitars, which we use in some of the new songs. But at one time, I was in the avant-garde of what was going on around the time of the Sgt. Pepper album, which was largely my influence. And I think (laughs) there's a lack of confidence. There's a frustration. Yeah. By the time we get to 1990... And he's touring Flowers in the Dirt. In the tour book, it says, uh, you know, my work with Eric Stewart didn't really work out as well as I wanted it to, although we did a couple of nice things, but it wasn't a very successful album. It all got a bit sticky because he thought I'd wanted him to co-produce the album with me, and I must have led him to believe that, but it all got a little bit dodgy because then I said, oh, we're getting so-and-so to produce it, not naming anyone by name. And he went into shock. So that fell through mainly because of that production misunderstanding. Um... Yeah. <laughs> and if you, if you, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting. He, he won't even say Hugh Padgham's name there. But if you look at the sleeve note on the album, it says musicians, producers, plural, engineers, tea breaks, tension, and performances were laid on just for <laughs> you. So the clues are there. Something I do like about the sleeve that we haven't mentioned is they're, they're fantastic diagrams that show the mixing. Yes, uh, yes. If you, don't, if you don't own a copy of Press to Play, Paul has done a drawing for each individual track about how the songs should be mixed. And it is a fascinating insight into his organised mind and how he perceives things because he draws a multicoloured uh, spectrum of sound that will explain so much about how to mix and how to produce. Um, in some ways, it's it, it kind of runs contrary to the technical side of producing that Hugh Padgham is bringing, that he's doing these drawings to explain his mixing and his placing of instruments. It's a fantastic little detail on the record. It is, and he has talked about this where he said he would sort of be there in the mixing session and sketching and doodling and, and, and doing this. And he said this is something that he, he does. And again, I... Again, box set material. We can have limited edition print. Those those sketches might have been a better cover, you know, just one of one of those drawings without the writing on it, with all the kind of rainbow of studio colours would be very good. Yeah, it's it's quite a tale, the tale of press to play. It's certainly none of the songs ever end up on any 
set list ever, um, apart from that one live performance on The Word and the other live performance on uh, the Royal Variety performance. And, you know, we talk about that great big reset in 1987. He also gets rid of Steve Shrimpton, his manager, and replaces him with Richard Ogden. I have to admit, I don't know anything else about Steve Shrimpton. No, and again, if you go right the way back to the very first of these 10 or 12 episodes that we've done uh, on Press to Play, (laughs) it's Steve Shrimpton is there and bringing Hugh Padgham in. And he seems, it does seem to be that Steve Shrimpton is the fall guy within MPL. And in in the Hard uh, Sounds book, Fab, he specifically says this is a reaction to poor sales. He then brings in a chap, Richard Ogden, uh, used to be with Polydor, to sort of help reactivate the career. And we've then got the march from 1987 to 1989, where we get... Paul McCartney, the legacy act, coming to terms with his past and out on the road playing the songs that people want to hear. And as you say, the songs that people want to hear do not include anything from press to play. What can we take away from all this? Did Paul and Eric make amends? They did. And so this is a nice ending Uh. to the story. They did. So we mentioned that he appeared on stage on the Variety Show and there must have been a sort of mending offences by sort of December. But they don't seem to have written together again, which again, I think is sad. Uh, I mean, I think some of these songs are great. And uh, if we get the stripped back versions stripped of all of the production, I think so. But Eric says, Paul and I didn't continue writing after press to play. I think initially because the album was not very successful. And he's asked, you know, the relationship must have recovered because obviously Paul played on a couple of tracks on Mirror Mirror. And he said, yeah, it did. We, of course, stayed friendly with Linda. And then I started seeing Paul again. You know, we'd have dinners together. We, we still talk. And the interviewer says, did he ever say to you, sorry about that? It was a bit of a cock up. Eric says, no, no, we didn't discuss that album at all. Didn't happen. The great compartmentalizer strikes again. Yeah, press to play. What do you think, everybody? I th- I'm, I'm ready for a the box set and throw in those Royal Variety performance uh, performances and uh, throw in the Stranglehold video set performance. And uh, there's a lot there. There's a lot, lot of pictures. There's a lot there. I wonder, I wonder, should Paul have done the album with Graham Goldman? There's a thought. There's another alternate reality version of things <laughs> if you're trying to pick a member of 10CC to work with. Um Again, answers on a postcard. Um, But what do you think, everybody? We hope we have managed to send you back to press to play with a slightly more open mind and open heart. And, uh, you know, why not uh, put on a copy of uh, Graceland and Never Let Me Down at the same time and Dirty Work? I think that'd be a nice evening's listening. It would. Um, We remain available in all the usual places. Nothingisrealpod.com, the website, which is your portal to the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, our um, X account. Um, We're also on Instagram, Mastodon, and uh, we want to thank all our ACAST Plus supporters for over 50 episodes and counting going on to uh, ACAST Plus, where we've got lots of exciting stuff, including the 16 songs of 66 and we have a mailing list now you can get in touch directly nothingisrealpod at outlook.com but for now my name is Jason Carty my name is Stephen Cockcroft and this has been the Press to Play Marathon they said it couldn't be done see you next time that doesn't drive the email traffic Um, I'm going to press stop thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real we hope you enjoyed today's episode and if you did why not become a member you'll get access to ad free content 
bonus episodes and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.